Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. This is actually the first, except for a couple little local New York things, the first stop on my tour, so I'm very honored and grateful that you're all out here. And I want to just generally talk about the book a little bit, talk a little bit about the ideas in the book and some of the things that have caused some controversy already. Um, I should probably start off with the word denialism. What do I mean by that? I think we all have been in denial in our lives. Something horrible happened, something not so horrible. Your girlfriend dumped you, you had a bad day, something worse. So you don't face the facts, you try to pretend it didn't happen, and, and I think that's human. It happens once in a while. To me, you get over it and you stay healthy. If you don't get over it, you don't stay healthy. Denialism to, is denial writ large. It's when a society does enter denial over an issue. And we see it a lot. And it's extremely painful and I think quite damaging. And the consequences of denialism, as far as I'm concerned, are much more severe than people often tend to realize. And we can see that right now in things that are happening. Obviously, it's hard not to hear the words swine flu these days. So swine flu, which shouldn't be called swine flu, it should be called H1N1 because it has nothing to do with swine. Um, this is a flu that there is a vaccine for. 11 million doses of this vaccine have been administered in the United States without one severe, serious, adverse reaction. Actually, I think there has been one reported. 4,000 people have died from this flu so far. A couple hundred of them have been children. Yet 35% of Americans say they won't take this vaccine. It's too new. It's dangerous. They're worried about putting a foreign substance in their body. Well, it's, it's not a new vaccine. It's a new virus. It's the same flu vaccine that we get all the time, and we would have gotten it in our normal shot had the virus popped up two months earlier. Putting a foreign substance in your body, I mean, you guys eat dinner, right? I mean, <laughs> that's one I could never really get. But it's something I hear again and again. And I, I was at a cocktail party in New York a couple of weeks ago, and a pregnant woman came up to me and said, ah, you're that flu guy, which is a great way to be described, but I guess it's true to some degree. I said, yes. She said, well, I'm not going to get that flu shot. I said, no, of course not, because you're pregnant, and there's no reason that you would want to protect your child. She said, I feel fine. I said, oh, cool. Um, you're going to continue to feel fine until you're sick, and if you have sex without a condom, you'll feel unpregnant until you are pregnant. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the feeling fine is... And, and I had a college classmate write me recently to say that she agreed with some of the things I said, but she certainly wasn't going to vaccinate her child against polio because polio isn't in America. Okay, that's cool because there is polio in the world and they have these new things called jet planes that go from one place in the world to the other and the longest flight in the world is shorter than the shortest incubation period for any infectious disease. So think about that. You get infected with polio in Nigeria. You get on a plane. You don't know that you're infected. You're not a bad person trying to infect Americans, but you come to Chicago nonetheless. 
We don't have special screening at the airport. I mean, I'm sure we would if the Homeland Security could figure out how to do it, but we don't. So people are going to go around with infections. Luckily, we have this fantastic thing called a vaccine for polio. The idea that people wouldn't take something because it isn't around is it's a little insane. It's a little understandable. We don't see these diseases. We don't see polio. We don't see measles that much, except in Southern California, where people don't get vaccinated, and we are seeing it. And in fact, we're going to see people die of measles if this doesn't stop. And people aren't vaccinating their children for reasons that are completely understandable. It's scary to them. They hear about autism. They hear about vaccines and autism. It doesn't matter how many studies have been done that refute any suggestion that those things are linked. People are afraid. And if you know anyone with an autistic child, you can understand that. It's, it's really horrifying. And at the same time that your kid develops normally for a while and then seems to go haywire, something goes wrong, it happens to be around the time, usually, when you get shots like your measles, mumps, and rubella shot. So any normal person is going to think, well, what happened that would cause this? That's normal. And it's so normal that there have been hundreds of studies in more than a dozen countries involving millions of children. And there has never been any evidence whatsoever that kids who are vaccinated develop autism at any rate greater or lesser than those who are not vaccinated. And this is actually something we can study because so many people have been vaccinated and so many people haven't. But it doesn't matter. There's something in science called true, true, unrelated. And it means, you know, I just had dinner, and maybe in an hour I'm going to get violently sick. And one would tend to think that those two things are related. They're not necessarily. They might be, but you can't assume that they are. But people always do assume that they are. And the effects of this are really quite damaging, because what happens is we start not vaccinating our children. And a lot of parents think that ought to be their choice. This is America, and people have rights. I have mixed feelings about that. Um, yeah, it should be your choice, except that if you send your kid to a school, and if I happen to send a kid to a school that has an Im immune-compromised disease, cancer, something like that, they can die because you didn't vaccinate your kid. And that's not just your choice. And this isn't an abstract idea. This isn't something that I'm making up. It happens all the time. And this is why these issues, to me, have real consequences and why I wrote about them. One of the things that has already popped up as a criticism of my book is I didn't really address things like global warming and creationism. I, I mentioned them both. But I guess my feeling is if you want to believe that our ancestors ran around on, rode around on the backs of dinosaurs, I, I can't. It, far be it from me to interfere with that. I also feel about global warming that the evidence of human interference is so clear and the effects are so devastating that I'm not sure what contribution I could have made in writing to the amazing body of evidence that we are the reason there is global warming and we need to do something about it. But these things that I've chosen to write about are things that I think are amenable to conversation. And that's really what I want to have. I want to have a national conversation about some of these issues. And one of those issues is food. Because that seems to create some of the most bitter fights 
that I've ever seen. If you say the word organic food and you say the word genetically engineered food in the same sentence, you better have a sword and you better have a shield because people are going to start screaming. I buy organic food. I eat organic food. I'm rich. I can afford it. We're all rich. We live in the West. We're not part of the billion people who go to bed hungry every single night. There was a World Food Summit that just ended in Rome today where a bunch of international leaders said this is a real problem in Africa. If we keep on the trajectory of population growth that we're on right now, Africans are going to starve within 40 years. You know, everyone agreed it's a terrible problem and everyone walked away and not much was resolved and no money was committed. And God forbid anyone should say that science is one of the ways that we can get out of this problem, as it has always been, because we have been predicting famine in this world since Malthus. And there's been some famine, but there's been a surprisingly little amount because we keep moving ahead with science. And genetically engineered food, I don't call it genetically modified because all food we eat, every single thing you've ever put into your mouth is genetically modified. I mean, they didn't have tangerines in the Garden of Eden or, you know, or cantaloupes or any, I don't, you know, these things over generations and thousands of years were modified by breeding. We mix genomes together to get the traits that we want. And it often worked. Sometimes it didn't. It was trial and error. We've done a good job. Genetic engineering is a more precise way to do some of that. And yeah, it has some risks. Every single thing we do has a risk, including the risk of not vaccinating your child and not feeding people who otherwise would starve. There are risks in every single decision. But the risks of genetically engineered food, especially the eating of it, are such that in 25 years of planting 2 billion acres of the stuff, not one person is demonstrably been made sick or died as a result. Does that, and, and, and I realized something in talking about this, when people object to genetically modified organisms, as so many people probably in this room do, mostly what they're objecting to is the multinational control of these things. Now, we could have a conversation about that, and I might even disagree with some folks about that, but that isn't the science. If you don't like Air France and you think it's a horrible airline, it doesn't mean that flight is bad. You know, this is a technology, and we have to start looking at it as a technology. In Africa, there's this, there's something called cassava. Maybe many of you have heard of it. Some, it's basically a bunch of carbohydrates. It has no micronutrients, no protein. A billion people eat it. It's all lots of them get. And it's not good enough to sustain you or to make you healthy or keep you healthy. So a bunch of people funded by the Gates Foundation have started to engineer micronutrients into it. Vitamin A, which keeps you from going blind. Protein, so that you can live a healthy life. If you live in sub-Saharan Africa in a drought area and you can't get your food at a farmer's market, and vine-ripened tomatoes aren't really at the top of your hit list, then this is a miraculous discovery. It's an amazing thing that humans can do. And the idea that we shouldn't allow it, and believe me, there are many of those in the organic religion who say we shouldn't allow it, it's just, it's just, it's hostile, 
and it's callous, and it's said by people who don't understand how other people live. Now, I'm not accusing everyone who prefers organic food of that. I think I prefer organic food for one and only one reason. I think it tastes better. It has, it has absolutely no, no better nutritional content. But that's okay. It tastes better and I can get it, so that's fine. But the idea that we should prevent other people from using the tools of science, it's insane. And it's often a result of people thinking, gee, if we have this, Monsanto is going to control it. Why? Why, why does, if we have a technology, we don't, are we so unresourceful as a country and as a world that we can't figure out a way to get a technology to the people who need it without giving it up to companies that we don't like? I, I refuse to believe that. And I know it's untrue because we have all sorts of vaccines and drugs that we now give poor people in the same places in the world that I'm talking about in different organizations, the World Health Organization, UNAIDS, a bunch of foundations, develops them and pays for them. And yeah, they do it because, you know, Merck doesn't really want to develop those drugs. They're not going to make much money. And I don't think Monsanto's going to make much money out of cassava. Okay, we can talk about capitalism on another evening, but the fact of the matter is we have methods in the world for dealing with this problem, and it's about time that we stopped whining about multinational corporations controlling a fantastic technology and use the technology the way we can with the risks that it has, and there are risks. There are environmental issues that we need to deal with as there are with conventional foods. Nothing is going to solve the problem of hunger in Africa, and genetically engineered food might not even be anything like the most important problem. And there are governmental issues. There are civil wars. There's bad roads. It doesn't matter how good your food is if you can get the food into the mouths of the people who want to eat it. We have a lot of those problems to deal with. But I will tell you that increasingly I see some opposition to something that people think is opposition to a type of food, and I really think it's opposition to a type of corporate governance. And we see this not just in food, we see it in something in our own lives, I think, which is our healthcare system. Our healthcare system, I think, for lack of a better word, sucks. Um, it's, it's horrible. And we pay too much when we get to pay it all. The care we get is not what it ought to be. And we live in a country where we, sh you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't have a healthcare system that's worse than the healthcare system of Honduras. I mean, it's just, that isn't the way America should be. So, again, people blame pharmaceutical companies. And sure, I think sometimes they are partially to blame. But what do people do when they start feeling oppressed by the government, by authority, by big companies? Ah, vitamins. Vitamins and natural health outlets and antioxidants and elixirs and potions and gels and magnetic fields will solve the problems that those evil pharmaceutical companies either cause or won't address. Are you kidding? I mean, I'd like to say that I am kidding, but we spent $28 billion on this stuff last year. Every increasing studies show that these things are basically good for darkening your urine, period. And if you want dark urine, they're great. I'm sort of agnostic on the urine color issue. But I will say this. Why is it that people think that, you know, vitamin C that says it's natural is good? 
and it's made by a good company. Do you know who makes it? Do you know how it's regulated? Do you know what's in it? Do you know who tests it? Because I don't, because it's almost never regulated properly, tested properly, or marketed properly. And I don't say this as a defender of pharmaceutical companies. The first chapter in my book is about the drug Vioxx. Vioxx was an anti-inflammatory drug that was sort of seen as a miracle drug for people with arthritis. If you have arthritis pain, and I'm sure some of you do, you take aspirin or you take Advil, and that can dull your pain and cause tremendous gastrointestinal problems. You can't do it forever. It doesn't work. It causes all sorts of side effects. These drugs seemed to be ways to get around the pain and and also around the side effects. They were considered miracles. And they were miracles, except that they started killing people in huge numbers, which took away from the miracle somewhat. And Merck, who marketed Vioxx, did nothing to help American consumers understand this. And they lied, and they pushed it, and they sold it, and they spent more money marketing it than any drug that has ever been marketed except, well, now, Viagra, which is, you can't go two hours without seeing a Viagra ad, but that's an important drug. Um, so I can, we can understand that. Um, no, but, uh, but without joking aside, Vioxx was a disaster for this country because people sort of assumed if a drug was approved by the United States government, approved by the FDA, you should probably be able to swallow it without dying. And for 55,000 or so Americans, that wasn't true. And that's the number of soldiers that were killed in Vietnam, by the way, American soldiers. So that's how many people died of heart attacks or strokes as a result of taking Vioxx. But it's actually not that simple. I wish it were. Because, yes, Merck did the wrong thing repeatedly and endlessly. And, yes, those people died. And, yes, it was a great drug. And it was a great drug for specific types of people. And we know enough in this country to know what types of people they are. If you have a low heart attack risk, if you have a low family history of cardiovascular problems, if you have low cholesterol, if you've never had an incident before, you would have less than a 1 in 150 chance of having a heart attack by taking Vioxx for 18 months. Now, this is not a theoretical question. But if you have arthritis pain every day of your life and someone comes up to you and says, what do you think, one in 150 to get rid of this pain? A lot of people would say yes. So all I'm saying is even with a drug that was marketed in the worst and most callous possible way, there was a place for that drug if we had used it properly. And this country doesn't use drugs properly. So when a drug is approved, the doctor can do whatever the hell he or she wants with it. And they did. They just, people went in, it was advertised, everyone was dancing on TV, people who were crippled were walking their dogs. It was fantastic. So of course you're going to go to your doctor and say, give me this drug. And the doctors, you know, they made money, they gave the drug. This shouldn't happen. But we also have to think about the other side of the coin, and we never really do. We have to think about who suffers when we don't have a drug on the market. If we've, we've gotten to the point in this country where if we don't, if we, end, if we market a drug and it kills six people, we take the drug off the market. Now, some of you probably came here in cars. 
Cars are going to kill thousands of people this year, and we're going to keep driving them. If, if cars were regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, no one would be allowed to enter a car. That's true. That is actually true. So I'm not saying, hey, let's, you know, Vioxx, great, let's not worry about those big pharmaceutical companies. I'm saying let's look at the other side of the risks. We never do. Let's look at the risk of not vaccinating our kids. Let's look at the risk of not having a drug that can treat millions of people on the market. These are risks you know, that, that really can be quantified, but we don't think about them, and we don't think about them for a lot of reasons. And one of them is that I think we have a mistrust of our leaders, and we ought to. They've lied to us lots of times. We have lots, of, we used to, you know, when I was younger, science and technology was this miraculous thing. It would cure disease. It would make all the water, all the salty water would just get rid of it and we'd be able to drink it. It would clean the atmosphere. If there was a problem, we could go live on the moon or some other place. There was nothing we couldn't do. I mean, I used to watch the Jetsons when I was a kid. I mean, it was fabulous. And as I got older, you know, there were fires in America set in the middle of the Great Lakes because we had so much pollution. There was Chernobyl in Russia, Three Mile, Mile Island here. There are endless examples, DES, the Pinto, Karen Ann Quinlan, who was the sort of the first person who was put on a machine endlessly and kind of ignited the discussion in this country, which has not ever and maybe never will be resolved of how do we decide when we live and die? When are we dead? Those things started to accumulate, and I think we walked away saying, you know, the science stuff, it's not necessarily so great. And I think we should think that. We should be skeptical about every new scientific technology, everything a company or government or leader tells us. But we should also understand that when there is data, when it's overwhelmingly solid, when tons of studies and lots of different people say the same thing after hundreds of different examples, we need to let go of our inner principles which tell us genetically engineered food will kill us even though we've been eating it for decades. I used to be opposed, by the way, to the labeling of genetically modified organisms on the principle that they're just like every other organism. Why would we label them? I, I'm not opposed anymore. I think we should label every one of them because I think everyone who goes into a supermarket or a farm stand or anyone where else should see what they're eating because everyone eats the stuff all the time and we're not dropping dead like flies. And I think maybe if people had some awareness of what they're actually putting in their mouths, they would shut their mouths once in a while and listen. That's my hope. Maybe I'm naive. I, what I really want to do with this book is have a conversation. It can be a loud conversation where people disagree, but we're at a point now where we're facing some really difficult choices, and obviously, to me, global warming is the biggest problem we face. We have some solutions to that problem. They are not the solutions. There will be no the solution, but science can help us. Synthetic biology can help us. Making organisms that fuel cars and power factories without emitting greenhouse gases can help. Using food and growing food that uses less insecticide, less energy, less water in a world where water is diminishing, that can help us. We need to use these technologies. We need to assess them. We need to be careful about them. And we need to have a huge conversation about the risks.
because there are risks. When we start creating organisms, you know, we are in an area that is genuinely scary. And maybe it would be the case that we would decide not to use those organisms and that we would not want to use those kinds of technologies. But I would sure like to have the conversation about energy, about drugs, about the future, before we do what we've done with genetically engineered food, which is just scream at each other at the top of our lungs. I went on NPR a couple weeks ago on Scott Simon's show, and I said some of these horrific things. You know, go on his website and look at the comments. I mean, how, you know, some of the people liked it. Most of them think I should be hooded and sent to Guantanamo Bay, um, which probably is not a good idea. Um, I just think that, that we're not, I don't believe that we're so dark that we can't have conversations about these issues. I, it's why I didn't write about things like creationism, because those conversations are not worth having. These conversations have to be had. They have to be. And so I'd like everyone to start talking about them and not screaming about them. But when you don't, when you run into someone who isn't vaccinating their kids, ask them why. And if you're that person, ask yourself why, really why. I mean, are you really worried about the risk? Does it really not matter to you that there are millions of individuals who have been studied that have shown there is no risk? Are you really unconcerned about the diseases that your children can die from? Vaccines are the most effective public health measure in the history of the world, except for clean water. And yet, here I am, we're having a conversation in this country about whether we should use them. I mean, what has happened? When did progressive become the equivalent of reactionary? Because the people who oppose vaccines are liberals. They're progressives. They're educated. They're thoughtful. They're the people that I've spent my life with. And I, I just don't get it. I, I, I'd like someone to educate me about that. But I don't get that. I don't think that's what America is. But anyway. So this is what I'm writing about, and this is what I'm talking about, and I will now, um, I think, stop hectoring. And let, if anyone wants to join the conversation, I'd be really very pleased to uh, hear what anyone has to say. Thank you. I really agree with almost everything you're saying, and I especially like, yeah. I thought, the, but not everything. No, there's going to be a but, but I especially like the point about progressives becoming reactionaries. But uh, when, with regard to Monsanto, um, it's not true that people have the choice to use alternatives. You do have a choice to use Linux instead of Windows or to use open, any kind of open source software. But uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of the fact that if you're a farmer in the Midwest, and your neighbor is growing Monsanto. Are you aware of that? Yeah, I, I have to say, I hate to be callous, I'm not as concerned with the Midwest as I am with Sub-Saharan and Africa. I, I agree with you a bit about America. This was a technology that was developed so people could grow corn more efficiently and we're all getting fat and having diabetes by eating too much corn. That isn't the fault of the technology. So we can talk about Monsanto forever. Yeah, but, but I don't think most Americans are aware. Well, that if you're, well, well I, how many people are aware that if you're a farmer in the Midwest and your neighbor is growing Monsanto products, you have no choice but to use that, Monsanto That's not products. actually true. Actually, that isn't true. Actually, it is. Are people aware of that? How many people are aware of that? 
it isn't true that there's no choice, and I've got some really cool emails from organic farmers in Iowa who want to make sure I understand that there's no choice. I'm not, I don't, I don't work for Monsanto. I, it's shocking no, to many no, people. But but my, my background is science, so I'm well aware of the issues you're raising, and you're making such valuable points. But it, it's important not to undermine your point by ignoring these political realities that are very, very important. You should care about the farmers in the Midwest. The fact that a single corporation can basically control the food supply of our country should, should be worrisome. As I said in my talk, this is, that is not an issue about the science. That's an issue about, that is a political issue in our country about corporations. But it's if a we, real issue. Yeah, but, but that is stopping people from using life-saving technologies, and it's ridiculous. It's a real issue, like lots of political issues, and we should deal with it like a political society deals with political issues. We shouldn't deal with it by saying, hey, let's let people starve because we have this amazing new technology, but we're not going to use it because some big multinational will take advantage of it. I, that is just something I don't understand. We, we ought to be able to address it. Uh, Where did this sort of perversion of progressive thought... And, and, and I kind of want to plead guilty because I was a hippie. It was a long time ago, and times were and you're better now. And we were revolting against a lot of the technology and, and the uh, misuse of science that took place in the 60s. And that's when the whole sort of new age and, um, you know, grow your own honey. Well, I was an organic gardener here in Santa Barbara, and we did all those things because we really thought sincerely that this was some way that we were going to help and save the world. And, and then, after five or six years of this, I actually made the mistake of taking a chemistry class. Total Oh, mistake. my God. My mind was blown. My right. worldview changed completely. It was a disaster because now I have to think about things scientifically. And so that's led me out of it, but a lot of people didn't get let out of it. A lot of people got stuck, and I think all of those people, the people that were my closest friends and the people who lived the same lifestyle, they got trapped in this era. I know. They did. And they're my friends, too. But we can... I don't, we can get out of bad things in this country. We can talk our way and learn our way and argue our way out. And that's why when people talk about multinational corporations, I don't dismiss that as a major concern, but I do refuse to believe we can't fix it. And I refuse to not look at the benefits. So yeah, there's lots of real legitimate reasons why we are the way we are. It isn't like people woke up and suddenly mistrusted government for no reason or thought pharmaceutical companies sucked for no reason or that Monsanto might be a little greedier than like your local mom and pop store. I mean, <laughs> those things are true. But we need to figure out what to do with them, with those facts. And I don't think what we're doing, which is it, running away from science, is the thing that is going to solve this problem. With regards to I have a question about alternative medicines and leaving vaccines aside, I wonder if the rise of alternative medicines is because many don't have access mm. to the regular medical system. Absolutely. I, I write about that a little in the book, and I should have mentioned it tonight. I, you know, you're sick. It costs a ton to be treated. You don't have a doctor. You don't have a drug. And you go into a place that says, swallow this, and it will deal with your problem. Of course that makes sense. It's just that it doesn't deal with your problem. It's not like I think people are crazy to turn. And interestingly enough, it's in terrible economic times that these alternatives do best. 
because people are desperate. But I don't want that to be our solution to these problems. It makes sense. I understand it, but we got to do better than that. But yeah, you're right. You're totally right. Where? That if My question is as follows. I think there are plenty of people in the audience and elsewhere who uh, agree with you and, 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 uh, and think that a lot of conversations ought to be had that are not being had right now. But a lot of us have been burned by trying to enter into these conversations and then having the response, which I'm sure you've had many times, where the person that they were trying to speak with immediately tries to raise it into a shouting match. Do you think that you could encourage us by recounting one or two instances when you entered into a conversation about organic food or whatever with someone, and it seemed like they were trying to get into a shouting match and you, with you, and you managed to bend the conversation into a very productive direction? Yes, I can encourage you. I was at Monsanto. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was talking to some guys from the World Wildlife Fund. They are much more pro-biotechnology than they used to be. And in fact, they're pro-biotechnology. And why? Because it reduces the use of insecticide. It reduces our reliance on water, which we don't have a lot of. It reduces our energy needs. There are problems with all use of this stuff. And it's not like, hey, we'll just use this and all the problems will go away. But these are positive. And people always act as if they aren't. And when the, month, when, when the World Life, Wildlife guys kind of looked at the numbers, they were amazed, even at the CO2 emissions and how they go down when genetically engineered products are planted. It's happened in China. It's happened here. It can happen elsewhere. So yeah, I've, I've had that conversation. And I think there are environmentalists now who actually don't even want me dead. Only, only six of them, but there are some. Talk oh, about okay, stop me if this is up t off topic, but how do we bring the green revolution to Africa sustainably? It's totally, not me, but... It's not off topic. It's actually horrifyingly on topic. Um, so Norman Borlaug brought the last green revolution, and I consider him to be one of the great people of human history. Many people consider him to be like Monsanto times nine. Um, and it's really true, and it amazes me. But why? Because the last Green Revolution was saved a lot of lives and improved a lot of lives and was extremely destructive on the environment. And we can't have that now. But we're not going to have that now because it isn't 40 years ago, and we're not as unsophisticated as we are then. So you bring the Green Revolution by bringing products that use less insecticide, use less herbicide, use less water. Also, there's only two ways that I know of increasing the amount of food that you can grow. You either use more land or you grow more food on the land you have. We don't have so much more land if anybody here wants to keep the rainforests. So that kind of argues for growing more food on some of the land. And the way to do that, I think, oddly enough, is by using the tools of science, which, by the way, isn't only genetically engineered. There are hybrids that can do lots of this stuff. But I think we can do it in a much smarter way, and people are beginning to do it in a much smarter way, with no-till soil, all sorts of stuff that's, that's been used, it's being used in California. It can be used in Africa. but. People aren't investing money in Africa. They're not spending any money on agriculture in these countries, and it's, it's really wrong. But I, I absolutely think we, we can't move forward if we don't do it in the way that you suggest, and we have to do it that way, and we can do it that way. I wondered about 
uh, the fact of, of having these uh, superfoods and their their takeover of the planet and the lack of biodiversity and their, you know, vulnerability. And like the Irish thing where the potatoes were were decimated and and the bananas in Central America. And then the other thing is the FDA after the Vioxx thing. Do you think they're, in your experience, do you think they're really, I mean, would you count on them? Can I answer the second one first so I don't yeah. cry? Okay. okay. Um, can you count on the FDA? Whoa. Is this, am I still being recorded? Uh, the person who runs the FDA now I think is fantastic. I think the president has appointed some really good people. Um, it's a big state ship to turn around in the middle of the ocean, but I think she's trying. Um, so, yeah, I think we can hope to trust the FDA. I don't think that people who work at the FDA get up in the morning and say, how can we kill the most Americans today? Um, I don't believe that. I don't think this is about payoffs. I think it's about bureaucracy, inertia, and doing things the way they were always done. And I think that that's changing a little, but that's a tough, that's a tough place, the FDA. It's a bit, they regulate a third of the American economy, and they haven't done it in the most stunningly wonderful way in the past. I think things are getting a little better, but if you quote me, I will deny it. Um, Superfoods, I think you're kind of talking about monoculture, which is bad and is always attributed to genetically engineered foods. Why? Why is, you don't think there can be monoculture with hybrids? Monoculture is a difficult problem that we need to address to improve the environment. We need to address it with genetically engineered products, and we need to address it with organic products or any other products that we decide to grow and eat. It's a big problem but it's not a big problem that exists only in one area of farming. I was going to ask also about how you can trust the FDA, and, but my tact is not so much on um, products that are grown, um, as much as products that are living, and that is factory farming of animals. And I don't know whether or not you address that at all in, in your book, and whether or not... Factory farmed animals? Yeah, the fact that, um, you know, we, I think they have pretty much misled the American population for a long time. I think the FDA would probably have to share the responsibility for misleading the, F the Republic, American public there. I, I, I don't even know if that's primarily the FDA's fault. I mean, factory, f I, I do address it a little in my book. I'm just very categorical. You shouldn't eat food that has hormones shot into it and antibiotics used as feed. It's wrong for the animal. It's wrong for the people who eat the animal. I'll say another thing, and I'm a hypocrite for saying it. Don't eat meat. If you really care so much about the environment, don't eat meat. Now, I eat meat, and I once wrote a profile of Ingrid Newkirk, the head of PETA, and, you know, she sends me vegetarian meals by FedEx all the time. And, and you know what? On many levels, she's a nut, but when you look at the environment, you look at the fate of the earth, you look at where we're going, it's really difficult. You know, people talk about grass-fed beef like it's a good thing. Are you kidding? Do you know how much water it takes, how much land it takes to make a hamburger? It's crazy. So 
is that an FDA problem? It's a USDA problem, an FDA problem? It's an everything problem. So what do you suggest? Well, I think we're doing it a bit. I mean, I, I think, you know, what Michael Pollan and others say is eat food. First of all, it would be good to be able to pronounce the words in your food. That's always... <laughs> I love it when I can do that. Um, if you can get food grown in a natural way, you ought to do it. But if you mean, can get local food, I think as it's... As a government... How do we you know, get the government to go there? I think we are getting the government to go there, but I mean, we have a president, yeah. or at least his wife, who's growing an organic garden at the White House. And I really don't care about the organic thing, but I do care about the local thing because it's great. And those kids are going to get fresh vegetables because I know we were worried about their health. But no, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. But I think it's a great thing because it's local food and that's wonderful. But I do think when the, when the president of the United States starts thinking this way, we're kind of inching in that direction. But I mean, one of the ways we get there is we all talk about it and we all say, why are we shooting hormones into our animals and eating them? And why are we eating them? Right. I'm glad you're optimistic. Um, Silly, I'm silly, but I am. Santo Times. You may not know about this, but uh, a guy named Ray Comfort is reissuing The Origin of Species with his own creationist forward, and they're passing it out, including awesome. here on Thursday. And so my question is, do you think that by avoiding the evolution issue, we're kind of just allowing them to get away because if you can ignore something as fundamental as evolution and it's it's acceptable to not believe it then these other things like vaccines and GMOs it's not as big of a leap you make a good point and one of the things about vitamins when a lot of people say to me gee vitamins are up to me and if you don't want to take them don't take them but the thing is, vitamins aren't a victimless crime either. None of this stuff is. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in Africa, and Thabo Mbeki, the former president of South Africa, killed hundreds of thousands of his own citizens by giving them lemon oil and garlic instead of antiviral drugs. And so two weeks ago, we had the remarkable spectacle of a president of that country standing up and condemning denialism and endorsing actual drugs to treat people who have the biggest AIDS epidemic in the world. So yeah, these things inch along and become really terrible. I don't know what to tell you about creationism. I went down to the Creation Museum when I was reporting this book. I thought I'd write a chapter on it. And all right, I'm going to tell this, even though I'm being recorded and I probably shouldn't. So I was, it was the day that Obama was, um, it was made known that he was going to choose Hillary Clinton as his Secretary of State. And I was sitting at the cafeteria next to a family that had certain ethnic and religious views that were unlike my own. And the TV came on and it said, Hillary Clinton is going to be the Secretary of State. And um, the woman just looked at her husband and said, oh my God, one of them's black, one's a woman and a Jew. What are we going to do now? And I'm like, yes. You know, but I couldn't, you know. But so, yeah, it's a real problem. It's a real threat. It's really horrible. But I don't know. I guess I feel that if I and others go around saying creationism, the reason I didn't write about it is because no matter what you say about science, they'll come back and say, but at some point, the universe had to begin. And it couldn't have begun without a greater being. And you can't, it's like arguing the vaccine issue. You cannot argue a negative. You can't prove 
that some guy up there with like a timpani wand didn't create the universe. It can't be proven. So I choose not to engage. Maybe that's the wrong thing to do. But it's just, I guess what I would say is everyone should speak out for evolution. It's an excellent theory. Believe <laughs> that. I don't. The average adult American in the U.S. has a about an eighth grade level of science comprehension. And I think this is why, despite the, Is it that high? <laughs> despite, well, about that. The, this, the, I think that's why, despite the fact that there's so much data about the safety of vaccines, that there's so much data that climate change is happening, et cetera, a lot of people either don't believe it or dismiss it or whatever. And so what I'm wondering is what your thoughts are on how do you, or how do you have a conversation or, or what kind of conversation do you have given, you know, about the science and the technology when a lot of people probably don't have the background to understand it? Okay, first of all, you're, you're totally right. We need to have a better science education. If you ever look at the data, I have a little bit of it in my book, but there's a lot more that I don't. We're, either, we're not really declining in our level of sophistication in this country. We're just sort of stagnant, whereas you know, look at China, Singapore, Hong Kong, all these other countries are like going like that and we're chugging along. And you know what? You don't get to keep knowledge. If you ignore knowledge, it goes away. And if it goes away, you know, might not get it back for hundreds of years, if ever. So that's a real problem. Now I'll say the utopian and idiotic thing, which is I don't think you have to be a genius to understand the vaccine issue. I think it's a combination of mistrust and lack of education, but it's also a result of vaccines being the greatest triumph in medical history. So we're not worried about polio. Who's worried about polio? Anyone think they're going to get polio this week? I mean, nobody worries about it. We got rid of smallpox. These weren't things that killed people hundreds of years ago. They killed people 25 years ago. And we did such a miraculous job that it's really very difficult to tell people that they should care. And so I hate to say, you know, when kids start to, you know, the measles, measles is plummeting in the developing world. It's still killing 250,000 kids a year, but it was killing 700,000 kids a year 10 years ago. The only places where the measles rates are rising and the vaccine rates are falling are Europe and the United States. I, I mean, how... How can that be? I mean, how shameful is that, that the rates are lower in Ghana than they are here? I mean, this is craziness. But so I don't think that education is the only thing. But I also think that the people who run this country need to talk about it. And I actually say in the book, I think the president of the United States should talk about it. If he's going to have town meetings about the economy, which is a huge crisis that many of us face in the newspaper industry, for instance, seems to be having some problems. Um, he should have those town meetings, but shouldn't he have a town meeting on the future of humanity and whether synthetic products can help solve our problems or not, and what are the risks and what are the benefits? I mean, those things are things that are the most important issues we face on the planet. So, yeah, I think the people who run our cities, our schools, our states, our governments, and our gyms should talk about it. But, and I do think that can happen, but you're right, it's not happening. Fresh vegetables. Bill Maher did an interview and quoted and said he did not believe in using vaccines. And yeah, was, he's an idiot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I happen to agree. Um, but he was th pretty thoroughly chastised. It's not an opinion. I, no. Yeah. Uh, 
scientific fact. Yeah, basically. In doing so, he was pretty thoroughly chastised by P.Z. Myers and Michael Shermer. And you sort of said this earlier about sort of upper class. People who are in privileged, privileged positions that use vaccines yet don't. And it's kind of a bizarre, and the whole Jenny McCarthy thing with the autism, what's, is there some odd theme that's going on that's... Fear. Okay. To me, fear is the theme, and I think fear is as infectious as any virus anyone can catch anywhere else. And, you know, I say lots of nasty things about Jenny McCarthy in my book, and I mean them all. Um, <laughs> but she's gone through a difficult time, and anyone who does and anyone who sees a kid suffer is going to grasp on to whatever they think they can to understand it. That, that I do understand. And I think that is something we need to be a little compassionate about. So I understand that. I think there are tons of parents of autistic children, and I know some, who do get their kids vaccinated, who want that money to be spent on autism research. You know, I know the people who run the vaccine programs in the United States. You know what they do? They go around the country explaining why vaccines are good. I want them to find cures to diseases, not talk about why, you know, the sun rises in the morning. But that's what they are forced to do. I don't blame them. So, you know, when you see people like Bill Maher, and I wrote about him in the New Yorker, and, um, you know, he's a funny guy, but he's an idiot, and he's done a lot of harm. And so is Oprah Winfrey, because she has Jenny McCarthy on all the time. And she's a person that everyone in this country respects and including me sometimes. And to give voice to people who are just really doing damage to many, many people, it's, it's just wrong for people in that position. So there's a lot of blame to go around. Bill Maher is only the tip of the iceberg. As a science journalist and educator, I'm wondering how if you could expand on some of your ideas about how to break through this multiple barriers of fear and ignorance that seem to be feeding the irrationality Talk. of this. And then the second part of it is, since denial is clearly a part of your thesis as well as what's, in my mind, happening to the fear of spread, the viral spread of fear, what kind of evolutionary survival benefit does denial have for the humans? That's way over my pay grade. <laughs> no, I'm not being chicken. I'm not sure I know the answer. That's an amazingly interesting question, the second one. Um, I, I, I'd have to think about that because it's... The, what could the... I'm sure there's like a really sophisticated... we got to call Dawkins. I'm sure he'll have an answer. But I, I don't have an answer that would be coherent enough to give right now. As to the other thing, I actually believe if we just talk, I, I, I don't know. President Obama got elected. I mean, things can happen. You need to talk. You need to go around. Let's have an Iowa caucuses on vaccines if we have to. I mean, I'll do that. Most of the population of the United States is too young and I'm too old because I can remember when everybody got vaccinated in public health uh, uh, well baby clinics. And mm -hmm. um, I had diphtheria, I had whooping cough, and then along came the vaccines, just a little too late for me for those. But uh, we went through a whole period of almost 50 years where there was some rationality and building rationality in this country. But the second problem is nobody can learn from anyone else's experience. 
So if you haven't experienced seeing your friends with polio babies and then the father dying of polio, if you haven't uh, been around when chicken pox could really maim you for life, measles did all these terrible things, and then along came vaccines. But people do learn from others' experience. We, oh, don't, have, we don't have a lot of nuclear wars these days. Uh, it, we, people do not learn from others' experience. I, there is a cycle that goes Come on, you look too kind to be that We don't cynical. hide under school desks in, for par preparing for a nuclear event anymore. We don't do I that. Do. <laughs> but, uh, and, but, you know, we're... we're each generation has to learn all over again. Some okay, of the so do you think that the answer is polio has to come back, cripple enough, and kill enough people so that we'll, uh, I mean, some people say that. Uh, there is something to that. Now, whether it has to be polio or something uh, a little less severe, like maybe just a chicken couple, pox. Just a couple kids dying? Just I mean. chicken pox, maybe, and then a few people getting... Uh, uh, shingles and then the neuralgia that lasts for years after that. Something like that. What Just do you do to for scare people. Are you like one of those bioscientist people? Um, no. I, look, you I, raise a good point. I'm not, I'm not with you there. I, I think these things can be addressed by... I, well, I refuse there, to... There, you have to put an awful lot of energy... So let's do that. What is more important seeds. than this? What is more important than having healthy people and moving forward and using progress and living better lives? I mean, what, what? I don't know, the next season of 24? I don't get it. I was waiting for the part of your talk that addressed contraception, especially in uh, poverty-stricken areas like uh, Africa, where, uh, I mean, the technology and the science is not, it's trivial to understand compared with, you know, genetic engineering, but it seems it's more either a cultural aversion to even go there uh, and how, how you, you go about, I mean, it's... it's well, listen, I, I don't address every scientific ill in this book, but I will say this about contraception. We used to, not long ago in my lifetime, have a president who forbid any money being spent on any international aid, going to any organization in the world whoever talked about something like abortion or contraception. So we've moved beyond that, and that's a help. I mean, we can't solve, every culture is different, and we here in Santa Barbara aren't going to be able to tell every culture how to deal with their issues. Food issues, vaccine issues, contraception, anything. But we can have these conversations, and I think on, I mean, if you look at the history of the world, the contraception message is getting out because populations are plummeting in almost every country. And that is a result of people getting better education, understanding, getting better health, and understanding the, the consequences of, among other things, not using contraception. So I, I think that message has gotten out and will get out more. Okay. Sorry. My question was this. Is there anything in your book about, about nuclear power? Nope. I mean, there's a sentence. I have a sense about everything so that when people like you ask questions, I can say yes. But all I say about nuclear power is that whether nuclear power could work for us or not now, it isn't an issue because so many people oppose even a conversation about it that we can't even, because, and again, why? Nuclear power used to suck. It used to be made badly and dangerously. That may or may not mean that it would be in the future, but we can't even have that conversation because we live in a world where those conversations aren't allowed.
So that's what I say. Thanks. Besides creationism, do you address religion in your book? Nah. Too dangerous? No, I think religion has a role in society, and I'm not one of those people who thinks if you're religious you can't care about science or progress because there's been too many billion people who have done both. So if somebody takes faith and religion and comfort, I'm, I'm not one of those people, but I don't see any reason that they shouldn't. So you don't think that religion plays a role in shaping public ethics? Sure. As far as technology and science is concerned? Sure. But religion is not going away. Not going to go away. So, and I actually don't even think it should. And I just believe there's tons and tons of examples of people, including Albert Einstein, who were religious scientific people. And I don't think those things have to be in opposition to each other. I just, I just don't. I wonder if you could project 20, 30 years forward, and unless, unless things change, where do you see the world, the country? You've got to be kidding. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I think we have always been a country and lately a world that cares about progress, focuses on progress, believes that science can help us get there. It's not the only answer, but it is an answer. And, and we've benefited from that. And I, I can't believe that won't continue. If it doesn't continue, you know, there were dark ages. We can have dark ages again. In 1492, the emperor of China finished building the Forbidden City. And as he did, a lightning bolt struck and destroyed some of the city. He interpreted that as being a message from the gods that he cared too much about technology and wasn't paying enough attention to God. He called back the ships, called back the technologists, stopped letting people make maps, and China went into darkness for five centuries. So it can happen. It happened. And there's no reason it can't happen to us but I don't think it will happen to us because we're, we're just too smart. We're not going to let it. I'll write another book if I have to. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.